This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you, everybody, for joining us again. If you thought woke corporate madness was getting out of control, consider the latest reveal about Coca-Cola. Did you hear about this? The soft drink giant recently was outed for hosting an online training course from critical race theorist Robin D'Angelo, in which employees were advised, among other things, to try to be less white. I'm not really sure how you do this, but when this was exposed, Coke tried to shrug off the understandable backlash. They said that they were just trying to build an inclusive workplace. But can you imagine if they'd shown slides to tell employees to try to be less Asian or less black, something like that? I don't think that that would probably go over very well. What is going on in corporate culture? Why is it that we're seeing so much of this woke capital? And what is going to happen in the future if we continue to put up with it? Well, today we're going to talk about it with Stephen Sokup. He is senior commentator, vice president and publisher of the Political Forum and director of the Political Forum Institute. His new book is called The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. Stephen, so good to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm well, Janet. Thank you for having me. Well, what are your thoughts? I thought about this as this Coca-Cola story broke. What are your thoughts about a company like Coca-Cola telling employees to try to be less white? I'm not sure how you do this. And I know they mean something different than the actual literal meaning that you should change your skin color if you happen to be Caucasian. But what is your reaction to this? Well, it's uh, my reaction is sort of sad resignation. Uh, I'm not surprised in the slightest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're seeing more and more of this and, and you're referring to this as a lot of people do as woke capital. What is woke capital all about? How would you actually put a definition to it? Well, woke capital is um, what I would call uh, a top down anti-democratic movement uh, by some of the most powerful and best known uh, men and women in American business who are trying to change not only capitalism and free markets, uh, but the fundamental relationship between the state and its citizens. Mm. Um, And I think what we're seeing from Coke, what we're seeing from Disney this weekend as well, are are prime examples of of, of how this plays out in practice. Well, you're right. Disney is going through some similar changes as well. And yet, as you point out, this is not historically where big business has been. Historically, it was a uh, a refuge really for people who did believe in free markets and did believe in free speech. But we've seen that shift. And that's something you've said has happened over a long period of time. Take us back a little bit. How did this all get going in the first place? Well, um, there are, as I document in the book, there are, there are actually two streams of thought uh, on the political left uh, that um, date back at least to uh, the late 19th century um, that merge uh, roughly in the 1960s to form uh, what would become woke capital. Uh, one of these streams is is the anti-democratic managerial uh, stream of um, <clears throat> progressive politics, and the other is the, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the post-Marxist uh, critical theory 
idea that um, reality is not what it appears to be uh, and that we have to change our reality in order to uh, live our, our best lives. So there, there, there are two intellectual themes uh, that, that basically carry out through the West uh, up until about the 1960s when they merge and make this a big deal for uh, corporate America. Well, now, when you're talking about those two streams, you describe the anti-democratic managerial stream. Uh, how are those people characterized? What sets them apart from the other stream? Well, um, I, I start the book uh, in Baltimore in 1876 at Johns Hopkins University, which was a new university uh, and not just a new university specifically, but a new type of university uh, for the United States. It was a research university. It was a university dedicated to discovering and explaining new things. It wasn't a university that was going to teach you about the old things. It wanted to teach you about what was new and how to think differently. Uh, And um, at Johns Hopkins in 1876, there was a professor there named uh, Richard Ely, uh, who uh, as many people know, is one of the godfathers of American pro- progressivism. Uh, and among his students, among his Ph.D. students, was Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was also one of the godfathers uh, of American progressivism. And, and together, Wilson and Ely uh, formed this idea that in order for the United States or any large institution, frankly, to run smoothly, uh, the people had to abdicate a certain amount of their uh, autonomy and authority to the experts mm. who would tell them what is best and how best to operate. Uh, and so f- starting at that time uh, and becoming enmeshed in administration, both public uh, and business administration over the next 100 and 120 years, uh, we have this theme of the people not being able to manage themselves and needing to be guided and directed by their scientific experts, their political betters. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit of a technocratic ideal. And yet. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have big business, though. Wall Street has always been looked at, at least for most of my lifetime, as a real conservative sort of movement. You know, the all those terrible one percenters. But we all can see how a lot of those big one percenters happen to be big leftists now. And there are people who see this and say, well, wait a minute. They're billionaires. They, They take advantage of the free market. And yet they're trying to be woke at every turn and be very top down and very authoritarian. Jeff Bezos wants a $15 minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. What do we make of that, that they're, they, they at least look like big hypocrites in many cases? Well, that's, that's the other stream, uh, the other intellectual stream that I mentioned. Um, in, uh, by the time the 1960s rolled around, uh, between the failures uh, of Marxism to launch a global revolution uh, in and after uh, World War One, and then the failures of the uh, communist regimes in Europe uh, for the subsequent, you know, uh, 40 or 50 years, um, there was a move away from uh, what would be called economic leftism. Uh, and the cultural left really started to come into its own at that point, and it became very much dissociated from the idea of, uh, you know, the, the workers managing the means of production and, and the traditional Marxist theories. And, and the left in this country, largely for the last half century, has been almost purely cultural. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it is possible today uh, for, you know, millionaires 
uh, like Nancy Pelosi to see themselves as progressives, to see themselves as the vanguard of this great, wonderful uh, leftist revolution, uh, whereas that never would have been the case uh, prior to uh, you know, in, in, in classical Marxist theory. Well, right. She has a 25, what is it, two $25,000 refrigerators that she just puts out <laughs> on the internet during a pandemic and acts like a total elite. With her ice cream. Yeah, with her ice yeah. cream, which looked rather delicious. But other than that, it was a pretty bad look for her. And, and all yeah. of the Clintons, you know, absolutely drowning in money and exploiting, you know, cash donations through the Clinton Foundation and all the stuff that we've seen. Why do you think, though, that people on the left look at these people and say, oh, that's fine. They they denounce rich people while they get rich. Bernie Sanders is another one who comes to mind. Well, I think the key understanding or the, the key phrase to understand what's all going on there was uttered by Bill Clinton probably back in 1996 or 1997. It was before the Lewinsky scandal. Um, I think he was being interviewed by Tom Brokaw uh, in uh, response to uh, the Indonesian fundraising scandal, you know, one of the dozens of Clinton scandals people tend to forget about. Yep. Uh, but um, Brokaw asked him, how, how do you explain all of this? How do you rectify this? How do you say, I'm, I'm, I'm a good man uh, and expect people to, to vote for you? And he says, well, I think that morality is defined not by what we do, uh, but by whom we fight for. Mm. Uh, it's about the causes we take up. It's not about our personal actions and our beliefs. It's about how, who we defend and who we think uh, deserves our, our energies and efforts. Uh, and, and I think that's the key to understanding it, is that as long as you're fighting for uh, the right people, as long as you're saying, look, um, I support anything that the LGBTQ community could want, yeah. then it really doesn't matter what else you do or what else you say or how much money you have. You're totally right. Hang it just there. We're going to come back. Stephen Sokup, his book is called The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. We'll come back after this. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, spending a few minutes with Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, people have a lot of questions today about their healthcare coverage. How is it that Liberty HealthShare works? Well, we work on an individual basis of mutual aid and sharing. So it's not a pooling of funds. It's not a big, complex, bureaucratic mess. It really is. Whenever you have a health care bill, our members go in and share in your medical expenses. And we have seen the decrease of costs, the decrease of complexity, and the increase of accessibility and freedom. So we change the whole script on its head when it comes to health care. So we're not beholden to large third-party payment systems that dictate to you to your health care. We set you free in your health care where you're guiding it based on your principles and beliefs. Why do so many members choose and recommend Liberty HealthShare? Well, there's a lot of reasons, frankly, but a lot of the reasons that people start with is cost. Health care has become very expensive. 
trying to pay that every single month or actually going to the doctor's office and having to take care of massive medical bills, that's a big drawback from third-party payment systems. And with Liberty HealthShare, we've done everything we can to try to bring that cost down as much as possible. But once people are a part of the community and see that it is an affordable option for them, they start to see that they're helping their neighbor each and every month go to bed every night knowing that you contributed to somebody else who has a need. And that's what being a part of a community is really all about. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or their phone number is 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Great to have you with us and great to be talking with Stephen Sokup, who is senior commentator, vice president and publisher of the Political Forum and author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. And we see stories like this every single day. I thought that was very telling, the quote that you had just mentioned, Stephen, before the break from Bill Clinton saying morality really can be redefined by who you fight for, not so much by your own morality. It turned out to be a very, very convenient way of defining morality, given Clinton's life. It's incredible. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's sort of been the mantra of, of the political left ever since, that it's okay. Whatever you do in your personal life is okay as long as you support the right causes. Yeah, that's pretty much how they operate. So one of the examples that you've given of woke capital was Larry Fink. This is the CEO of BlackRock. People may know that name. Pushing this idea of sustainability, and that thing has really exploded in the last few years, what do you make of that fundamental reshaping of f- the financial world, this ESG movement that you talk about? Well, uh, that's actually the, the primary focus of the book. Um, and, and the reason I wrote the book is because I've been in the financial services world. I've worked in the financial services world as, as a researcher uh, and as an analyst for 25 years. Uh, and when I started digging into this, um, I learned so much that I didn't know, uh, and when I started sharing it with clients, they learned so much that they didn't know about how deeply ingrained all of this is uh, currently in the financial services world. Mm. Um, Larry Fink is the chairman of BlackRock, which is the largest asset management firm in the world. Uh, they control $9 trillion. They have $9 trillion in assets under management. Uh, and over the past two years, um, Fink has made it clear uh, in letters, in his own words, that he intends for s- sustainability, which is code for climate change, um, is his primary, it is and will be his and his company's primary focus uh, for uh, evaluating investments uh, going forward. Uh, so no longer does it matter simply whether or not you're financially sound and have a good management and have a, a solid um, business plan. What matters is how well you're doing meeting these sort of nebulous goals on the climate change and how well you're preparing for the post, um, the post, uh, 
the, the world that would exist once we've once we've taken care of all of our fossil fuels. Right, right. That, but that's scary on a number of levels. I mean, this reminds me of the proposal from a few months ago that the boards of the NASDAQ companies had to have at least one woman and somebody is an underrepresented minority or a different sexual orientation. I mean, people saw that, especially people who are not enmeshed in the financial world and said, what kind of balkanized bean counting is this? That's one of the descriptions that I read online from somebody who was writing about this. This is just becoming almost normal. Like you've said before, it doesn't surprise you anymore. But what does that do to the average investor who says, well, wait a minute, this isn't the direction we want everything to go. Why why do we have to comply with all of this? Well, what it does essentially is lock the average investor out. Um, And that's sort of the point. Um, This is an extremely anti-democratic movement. Uh, Not only do they seek to achieve ends that could not be achieved politically, but they seek to achieve ends by using the uh, shareholder voting system uh, to essentially lock out and to prevent average investors from having anywhere near as much say as they might want to. Wow. Um, BlackRock, uh, for example, uh, is the second largest passive uh, asset management firm in the con- in the world. The largest is is Vanguard, uh, and the third largest is State Street. Together, in their ETFs, in their index funds, these three asset managers hold in the neighborhood of twenty to thirty percent of every single company on the S and P five hundred. Mm. All three of them have dedicated themselves to this idea of sustainability. Now, for years, they told us, you don't have to worry about how much power we have and how much more power we're accumulating, because we have different philosophies uh, with respect to investing. Well, they no longer do. They all, they all insist that sustainability is the most important thing. And so they can all and will all uh, vote as a block and use your money, your $9 trillion that you have invested in your account, in your IRA, in your 401k, to... Uh, determine how companies should be run, who should run them, who should be on their boards of directors, etc. And and the average investor sitting at home with his 25 shares and his his proxy sheet can't compete with that, cannot possibly compete with that. Right. But those who say, well, okay, I, I know I need to make money in the stock market and I do need to invest in order to keep pace with inflation and be able to retire someday. But on the other hand, the flip side of it is private companies who are not part of these exchanges. What happens to them? I mean, that that's part of the question, too. We see with the rise of cancel culture, what big tech is doing to people. It's almost like they won't let you get away. They don't want you to find any space where you can escape them. And maybe that sounds a little, you know, dramatic, but it sure seems like that to a lot of people. Do you think so? Well, absolutely. It's funny you should mention private companies um, because uh, just last week or the week before, uh, Larry Fink uh, was making a couple of speeches and was asked about um, what the SEC and the Treasury and the Federal Reserve under the Biden administration are going to do about sustainability. And he expressed his frustration, saying, look, they don't need to get involved. The government doesn't have anything to do with this. We've got it taken care of. We are managing sustainability within the public, uh, publicly traded indexes. Uh, So the government should basically focus its time and its efforts on privately held companies. 
which, you know, is a very direct and very powerful threat. It is. Uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, to, to say to privately held, uh, you know, oil and gas companies that we would like the government to spend its entire efforts trying to get you to have to comply with these same, you know, silly uh, ideas that we comply with. Right. Oh, man, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. And I'm wondering to what degree you see activist influence making a difference. Because when you mentioned before the LGBT movement, uh, people will recall, I think it was the North Carolina bathroom bill when they were trying to pass that and all these businesses, these big corporate businesses stepped up and said, we're going to boycott you. There were a lot of business boycotts. And, and that was a point in time where I think many people said, wait a minute, why are these businesses all worked up about this? How much do the activists matter? The, the leftist activists on the ground when it comes to pressuring corporations, just regular corporations, on being woke. How much does that matter? It, it matters a great deal. There are, um, a, generally speaking, pressure is applied to corporations from three directions. Uh, there's pressure applied from the bottom up, uh, which is workers saying to their uh, corporate managers, hey, we want you to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be unhappy as employees. There's pressure from the top down uh, from woke business managers um, who are applying pressure to the company and using uh, shareholder funds to achieve their political ends. And then there's pressure from the outside in. And this pressure from the outside in comes both from activists uh, and from activist uh, asset uh, managers and shareholders, such as BlackRock in this wow. um, So yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of, of influence being wielded. Um, you, you mentioned North Carolina, but in uh, two years after that, in uh, Georgia, this is where, uh, you know, I think uh, that the, the activists in, in woke America overstepped just a little bit. But you know, Georgia, a center-right state, um, its elected representatives passed a heartbeat bill, yes. uh, you know, an, an abortion bill that said that they would ban abortions after fetal heartbeat can be heard. Um, the entertainment industry, uh, which has spent the last two decades building essentially Hollywood East in Georgia, <laughs> became infuriated. Yes. Um, Disney, under Bob Iger, said, look, I don't know if we're going to be able to do business in Georgia anymore, uh, because I just don't see how that is possible for us to get our talent to work there. And you consider the fact that Georgia has 100,000, roughly, average Georgians whose jobs depend on the entertainment industry. And what these guys were doing was saying, my political beliefs matter so much more than your job that I'm willing to sacrifice your job for my politics. I remember it, that. It was a disgrace. It was a disgrace. It was really bad. Where do you see this all headed, Stephen? Because as bad as it is right now and as distressing as it is for many people to see this unfold, what is the real danger of this as we move forward, given the administration that we have now? Well, I, I think that the dangers are significant. Um, at this point, um, what we need to do is raise awareness uh, among uh, average everyday people, just so they know what is happening, why it's happening, and how it's happening. We need to raise awareness among investors, among uh, asset managers, among HR uh, departments that choose which funds uh, 401ks will be invested in. We need everybody to understand what's going on, uh, why it's going on, and how it could affect us moving forward. Because the alternatives, if we don't do this, if we don't 
make a stand now are pretty ugly. Well, they are. Should it affect the way that average people invest? I mean, to what extent do people need to become more knowledgeable about the companies they're investing in? Well, I, I think that people should do their very best to become uh, more informed about uh, the funds that they invest in. Most people invest today uh, in uh, ETFs, in exchange-traded funds, because that provides incredible diversity uh, that people wouldn't have otherwise, and it, it makes it very easy. Uh, but what people need to be aware of is who's determining what index and you know how these indexes are, are being laid out uh, to make sure that they're not investing in something that gives BlackRock, for example, your uh, the, the leverage of your money in addition to everything else they have uh, to make these woke changes at, at various corporations they hold. Well, that's this is all very, very important. A great book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital from Stephen Sokup. So good to have you, Stephen. Thank you for telling us what's going on out there. It's really helpful. It was great to have you here. Thanks, Janet. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Planned Parenthood has just released its annual report showing it killed more than 354,000 babies in 2019. That is a 15-year high, and it's an increase of more than 9,000 babies over the previous year. This comes as President Biden and his administration want to force American taxpayers to bankroll big abortion. We're going to get some thoughts on the latest report now from Chuck Donovan, president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is the research arm of the Susan B. Anthony List. Chuck, so good to have you here. Thank you. My pleasure to be on, Janet. Thank you. Well, it is gut-wrenching every single time one of these reports come out in order to you know, show us how many children Planned Parenthood actually aborts. What are some of the takeaways that you are having when you're looking at some of this data that people should know about? Well, these things don't happen by accident, Janet. We have a decline nationally uh, that has spanned almost 40 years in the number and rate of abortion, although actually it's uh, the rate ticked up a little bit uh, in the last year that we analyzed. But you can't expand abortion by this much without having it as an overriding objection of your work, or objective, I should say. And Planned Parenthood has obviously had that. This is the most abortions they performed, as far as I can see, in any year since they were founded. Wow. And it's a year after they rejected a president of the organization who suggested moving away from an abortion emphasis, uh, clearly Planned Parenthood has no plans to do that. No, that's right. It's interesting, though. One of my thoughts when I looked at this initially was that we have seen a big decline in the number of surgical abortion clinics over the years and an increase in teleabortions and, and those kinds of things. How do we account for this kind of rise in abortion? Does that come into play at all? I mean, how do you have this many more abortions um, when you've seen, like you said before, we've had so many years of decline nationally? How are they getting this done? It sounds so gruesome to say it that way, but how do, how do we figure this out? Well, I think there have been a couple of components to it. One of them is the fact that 
even in the time of COVID, of course, there was a push for telehealth. Uh, some states uh, prohibited abortion clinics from, from practicing it, but many states did not. Uh, this was a perfect climate to uh, push expansion of medication abortion by mail or by uh, drive-by at a clinic. Uh, basically, there's less and less interaction with medical people uh, until, of course, a woman might experience in, in a complication and have to go to uh, an emergency room. She doesn't go back to Planned Parenthood. So I think there's also a lot of holes in the data. We're, we are seeing uh, states that have 70% of the abortions taking place are now chemical, uh, but we're not we're not seeing the follow up that you the minimal that you would have seen with surgical abortion. Uh, that's going to become much harder to detect with chemical. Well, that's right. I, it's very disturbing either way, and it's really weird too because you've said here that abortions are increasing, obviously at Planned Parenthood, but in general, abortions are declining across America. What? Where is the intersection between Planned Parenthood getting more and more business, and some of the other non-Planned Parenthood abortion clinics doing fewer abortions? Are they moving in and acquiring these facilities, or what's happening? I think what they've done is they have all of the muscle in the world with respect to marketing. You know, several years ago, Charlotte Lozier did a national survey of 1,300 women. And what we discovered was pregnancy health centers are understood and recognized by just under half of, of women uh, in the United States. Planned Parenthood's name recognition is in the high 90s. Mm. So we've helped in a way by... by uh, Focusing on the bad things they do, we probably help them become notorious as well as well recognized. But they have millions and millions to spend on publicity, and that's one of the things government dollars makes, uh, you know, makes possible. Yeah, that's right. What is their actual market share on abortions? I've seen some different figures. One was about fifty-seven percent of all abortions are Planned Parenthood abortions. I think that was from the CDC. Is that is that in the ballpark? Is that correct that it's that high? I don't think they're quite there yet, although they have a number of mega centers uh, that will be distributing the pill. I wouldn't be surprised to see them go over uh, 45%. I think they're probably closer to that 43 to 45% range. But look, they're, they're driving toward being the majority stakeholder in abortion in the United States and probably worldwide. Yes. Well, and now they have a very friendly administration in the White House. Talk a little bit about what people need to know concerning the policies the Biden administration is looking at to shore up the power and the killing power, especially of Planned Parenthood. Well, Janet, I had the uh, privilege to serve in the Reagan administration, which was pro-life. But in the course of just four years, the Trump administration installed a much wider global policy of limiting funding for abortion. Uh, They passed the Protect Life Rule, or adopted it, I should say, which kept Title X funds away from Planned Parenthood. Uh, They were beginning to encourage states to consider allowing uh, Planned Parenthood to be dismissed from the Medicaid program by allowing waivers for that. So there was a much deeper pro-life policy commitment with regard to Planned Parenthood funding. Well, all of those things are going to go steadily out the window with the new administration. And the big one we're concerned about is that the administration will uh, eliminate the FDA's risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. Uh, That's the policy that requires women to get medically evaluated before they receive the pills. Mm -hmm. The abortion industry is moving toward basically distribution by post office or pharmacy 
which frankly would be a disaster. Wow. So with the medicine then, you would be able to go to the post office if they get their way to be able to get abortion-inducing drugs at the post office? Well, you'd be able to order it online. It'd be delivered by FedEx, UPS, or, or even the Postal Service. But the key thing is the women who do this don't get a medically evaluated to confirm pregnancy and the location of the pregnancy, and they should be uh, reviewed so that if there's not an ectopic pregnancy, in which case the abortion pill would actually mask their symptoms from an ectopic. Uh, but there are other things as well as, as well as getting RH sensitivity dealt with. It's very hazardous for women to be taking, particularly young women, uh, to be taking these medications without uh, a physician workup, and they're not going to get it under Planned Parenthood's plans. Yeah, uh, it's just terrifying. I mean, it makes total sense that they want to do this. They're just trying to expand more and more power for Planned Parenthood. You know, yeah. what do we do? It, like you said, you know, the Reagan administration was great on life. The Trump administration, I would say, was even more spectacular on the uh, on the issue of life and instituting, implementing, I should say, all of these great policies. Now we've taken so many steps back with a very virulent pro-abortion administration in place now. What is the next step? Where does the pro-life movement go from here? We've seen, for example, the South Carolina fetal heartbeat law. Already a judge has put a hold on that. But where are we right now as a movement, would you say, in being able to get back to where we were just months ago? Well, I think people are probably struggling a little bit with the uh, emotional impact of a very emotional election going the wrong wrong direction, at least for pro-life. I think one of the things we need to do is not lose heart. Uh, there's a record number of pro-life laws continuing to be adopted. Uh, the American people continue to reject Roe v. Wade. Uh, we can perhaps defeat one or more of the Biden administration policies. Uh, our hope would be that the U.S. Senate would be able to hold uh, some of the territory. It's about evenly split. If we can do those things, uh, you can significantly affect the Congress and the makeup of the Congress in 2022. Uh, and doing that, then uh, we're back to the opportunity to win another election. And, yeah. you know, the battle goes on, but we also all need to continue to work up pregnancy care centers because they remain uh, just this, the sharpest contrast with Planned Parenthood in, t- in terms of how they operate. Free services, compassion, counseling, pregnancy support, parenting, education, uh, today's pregnancy centers are not not your grandfather's pregnancy care centers. <laughs> yes. uh, they're better than ever, Janet. Oh, they are. They're fantastic. And what of Biden's plan to codify Roe v. Wade, even on the long shot that the Supreme Court would ever overturn it? He wants to codify it into federal law. Do you think he'll be able to do it? I think we should be able to stop that. And it's going to depend on a couple of unlikely uh, partners. Uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, which, by the way, is an extremely pro-life state, uh, he's a Democrat. He has cast some votes against us, but we'd be counting on him and a few others to realize, you know, not only is this bad policy, it's uh, bad constitutionally. We'll make that case, but it's also politically bad for the Democratic Party. They, they've gone very extreme on some issues. This would be, I think, uh, among the worst that uh, could, we could imagine. You're very right. Chuck Donovan from the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Thank you, Chuck, for the great work you guys do. And thank you for being with us with the update. Thank you, Janet. All right. Keep up the good work. We'll be back.
This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her baby. I know God wouldn't have wanted me to just throw away my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Let's talk a little bit about Dr. Fauci. Megan McCain thinks he ought to go, and she's not the only one who thinks he needs to go. I just want to know, as somebody had brought up on social media yesterday, what has this man been right about at this point? Wasn't it 15 days to slow the spread? It was about 400 days ago, give or take a few days. I don't know what he's been right about, because whenever he makes a prediction or he makes some sort of statement, then when things go south, he turns it around and says he meant the opposite. Oh, yeah, you shouldn't wear masks. Yes, you should. I'm not wearing a mask, but you should. It's on and on. Now he says that, oh, yeah, it's possible Americans will still need to wear masks in 2022. What happened to vaccinations were going to be the key to returning to normal. And you just don't understand the brilliance of Dr. Fauci. This is Dana Bash on CNN talking with him. This has got one. You and the president have suggested that we'll approach normality toward the end of the year. What does normal mean? Do you think Americans will still be wearing masks, for example, in 2022? You know, I think it is possible that that's the case. And again, it really depends on what you mean by normality. If normality means exactly the way things were before we had this happen to us, I I mean, I can't predict that. You can't predict anything, Dr. Fauci. Oh, it's possible. I mean, normality. I mean, normality is sort of in the eye of the beholder. And he goes, I didn't make you suffer through the whole thing because he just talks in circles and it's a bunch of gobbledygook. Well, it's a new normal, but it's normal that'll be kind of more normal, but it's not going to be quite as normal as normal used to be. And blah, blah, blah. How much more time do I get in this segment, Dana? Hey, I'm on TV. 
That's Dr. Fauci in a nutshell. Now, I thought this was interesting. Tom Elliott from Grabian Media honed in on some of these old Fauci clips, and I thought this was very interesting. Back in 2014, and Fox News talked about this as well, Dr. Fauci did an interview with Chuck Todd on NBC at the time that the Ebola virus was freaking everybody out. Remember that? And at the time, as Chuck Todd pointed out, New York and New Jersey and Illinois were doing mandatory quarantines when people were coming over from certain parts of Africa. And at the time, Chuck Todd says, is this a good idea, Dr. Fauci? Here's what he said. Cut to. The first thing we need to do is make sure the primary goal is to protect the American people. But there are ways to do that that may not necessarily have to go that far at all. And so they've we, gone too far. Governor well, Cuomo and Christie you know, overreacting? I don't want to be directly criticizing what was what the decision that was made, but we have to be careful that there are unintended consequences. The best way to stop this epidemic is to help the people in West Africa. We do that by sending people over there, not only from the USA, but from other places. We need to treat them, returning people with respect and make sure that we they're really heroes. So the idea that we're being a little bit draconian, there are other ways to protect. There's monitoring, okay. there's direct monitoring, there, there's active monitoring. We don't necessarily need to do that. Yeah, this is Dr. Fauci. Just a few years ago, he's worried about unintended consequences of quarantines. He cares about the dignity of these people who are coming in from Ebola-laden countries. You got to think about these people. Uh, how much did you care about small business owners during the course of the pandemic when you were locking everybody down and the huge majority of people you were locking down weren't even sick? What were the unintended consequences of that? People losing their livelihoods, people losing their jobs, kids getting depressed and committing suicide, people going back into all kinds of addictions, maybe unintended consequences like that. This guy's all over the map because at the time, this was what the left said, right? Ebola, which has something in the neighborhood of a 50% death rate, it's far more dangerous than COVID-19. They thought it was no big deal. Remember Obama? He thought anybody who was worried about Ebola was just a crazy person. Isn't that incredible? Now, Chuck Todd asks about the governors of Virginia and Georgia at the time who may feel pressured at this juncture to do the same thing that those other states are doing. In other words, Virginia and Georgia, he was worried, would feel the pressure, social pressure, because Illinois and New York were quarantining these Ebola people. Uh, What is your advice to these states, Dr. Fauci? This is cut three. Go with the science. That's what we're trying to do here in our government. Go with the science. And, and the, the science, science says. The science tells us that people who are not sick, if you do not come into contact with body fluid, if someone comes back from wherever, Liberia, and they're well, they are no danger to anyone. That is for but sure. Dr. And that's Spencer was well for right. a week. Right. He was well for a week. But the, we're not saying just leave them off. You monitor them. You mm-hmm. can monitor them in multiple different ways. You don't have to put them in a confined place. I don't even know what to say to this. I, I don't know what you can say to this because this guy is not an elected official. He's an expert. You see, he's an expert. You don't have to be elected by we the people if you're an expert. You just have to have the right friends and high places in the Beltway, and you can say and do whatever you want. And as long as you have friends in the media, they're not going to come after you for your hypocrisy and your scientific hypocrisy and for the fact that you basically have no idea what you're talking about and you are guided more by your politics than you are by science, which seems to be pretty rife over on the left. Science is only used as a club. It's really not followed. 
Because if it were followed, we never would have been locked down. We now have all of the information pertaining to the harm of the lockdowns. Does anyone care on the left? Have you seen screaming and yelling on the left? These people can't even get worked up about Andrew Cuomo, for heaven's sake. How are they going to get worked up about locking you down and locking your family down? They don't care. And they'll get out there and lecture you all day long about loving your neighbor, if that's the Christian side, or, and you should love your neighbor, I'm not trying to say anything cheeky, I'm just saying they use that as a club against anybody who questions whether or not we've been had. And then in the secular side, you have people who are saying that, you know, it's so scary out there. COVID-19 is so scary. It is scary, but most people recover. And you're not allowed to say that because then you're basically insinuating that you don't care if people die, which is not true. Not true at all. Now, the same day that I was just playing for you, he was on CBS. This is Dr. Fauci in 2014. Listen to what he said when he was appearing on CBS about Ebola. This is cut four. We've learned that we've got to be more, uh, continue to be aggressive in our educating people to understand. Because right now we have a devastating epidemic in West Africa and we're having an epidemic of fear in the United States. So we've got to continue to try and educate people about what they need to or do not need to be afraid of. And so far, if there are no symptoms, there's no contagion. Right. You have to come into direct contact with body fluids. As someone who's standing there looking well, they're not going to transmit it. Oh, all right. Well, even the mildest cases, and I've got the CDC stats here, even the milder strains of Ebola killed more than 50% of the victims, as I mentioned before. It's not contagious until symptoms appear. COVID-19, as we know, can be transferred through some asymptomatic people, but it's a much lower rate. And what about the masks, by the way? Uh, Fauci also has kind of tiptoed around this issue of how many masks you ought to be wearing and people are laughing and crying over it. I'm not putting on another mask. I'm not even sick. Well, that's that's true. And I have to salute Daniel Horowitz over at Conservative Review because he had put out on social media this interesting clip from OSHA, from OSHA about face masks. And I think he's absolutely right that when you listen to this portion of the video, you'll quickly see it blows up the entire premise of mask wearing altogether. This is Cut 5. Face masks help stop large droplets from being spread by the person wearing them, whether that person is a patient or a healthcare worker. Face masks also keep splashes or sprays from reaching the mouth and nose of the person wearing them. However, face masks are not designed or certified to seal tightly against your face or to prevent the inhalation of small airborne contaminants. During inhalation, small airborne contaminants pass through gaps between the face and the face mask and the material of the mask. Remember, face masks are not considered respirators and they do not provide respiratory protection. I will not start screaming. I will not start screaming. I will. But I might take a clip of that video and bring it on my next flight because you have to sit on your flights now with that thing sealed tightly around your face. I don't really do it sealed tightly around my face because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And we all know this. As you just heard, face masks are not designed to seal tightly against your face or guard against small contaminants, period. We know this. It's not about the science. Over at Vox.com, this is how crazy it's getting. They have this headline, still going to the grocery store with new virus variants spreading. It's probably time to stop. That's right. Stop going to the grocery store because you don't need to eat. Don't you love your neighbor? 
If you go to the grocery store and you pick up a gallon of milk or a loaf of bread, you could be killing somebody. Even if you have no symptoms and you may be only wearing one mask, how horrible are you? Put on seven. And by the way, stay home and don't eat. Stop eating. Don't you love your neighbor? At what point do the American people rise up and say, I'm done? (laughs) I'm still waiting for that moment. I'm still sitting here waiting for that moment, and I'm praying it will be soon. We have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us here on Janet Meffer today. It's always a delight to have you with us. We really do appreciate your listening. We'll see you next time. God bless. God bless.